And we're going to be looking at Proverbs 16, 31 through chapter 17, verse 6 this morning. And we're looking at six ways to flourish in the second half of your life. You know, flourishing is this idea of, of basically of growing and being healthy and successful and doing well. It's thriving. It's thriving. So I want to take you back to uh, 1993 to the playoff game between the Houston Oilers and the Buffalo Bills. This was uh, a, a very historic game. The first half of the game was a complete blowout for the Oilers. They were uh, perfect in their execution. They could do no wrong, and they jumped out to a double-digit lead by the end of the first half. Now, the Bills had been to the, to the Super Bowl the year before. Didn't win, but they'd been there the year before, and they really wanted to go back, and it was not looking like it was going to happen. So Marv Levy, who was a great coach and a great motivator, went into the locker room, and he gave his best motivational speech. Now, I should imagine these guys in the locker room hearing the speech, and they're discouraged, they're dispirited, and they lean into what Levy is saying. They get excited about what Levy is saying. Now they're fired up. Now they're standing up. Now they're cheering, and they go back out into the field, and it's still really difficult. And by the middle third quarter, it's 35 to 3. And then something happens. The momentum begins to shift in a really big way. And uh, the Bills score an unprecedented 35 unanswered points. Yes, Houston ties it up at the end of the game, but it goes into overtime, and uh, they win. Biggest comeback, still the biggest comeback in NFL history. Nobody has come back from that sort of a deficit. Now, in many ways, your life is structured like a football game. You got uh, the first half takes place in your 20s or teens, in your 20s, in your early 30s. And in those years, you know, life is big, life is abundant, your future is before you. You think, um, man, I'm going to achieve all my dreams, no problem, I'm going to make it happen. It's going to be great. And then something changes. Now, roughly between the ages of 38, 44 years old. I mean, that's sort of arbitrary. It could happen any time, maybe during your 40s. And um, that's sort of like halftime. And you're forced to reassess the direction of your life. Maybe you're not achieving the aspirations you had when you were younger. Maybe you can't sustain the frantic pace that you had. Maybe you've got a household full of kids, and your life starts to slow down so you can take care of those kids. Or maybe you've gone through heartbreak and tragedy. I don't know of, of anyone who has come through their 30s and their 40s without some heartache, without some significant level of pain. And Bob Buford, uh, who wrote the book called Halftime, calls that middle section where you're reassessing life calls it halftime. And in that space called halftime, you have to reappraise where you're going and why. Now, I realize it may be a little simplistic to say you've got the first half of your life and then you've got halftime and then you've got the second half of your life because some of you have gone through two halftimes where you've had to reappraise twice. Some of you maybe, maybe more, but the overall paradigm is helpful 
Because all of us go through a season where we realize, I'm not going to live forever, and I need to do those things that count. And Solomon is intensely interested in us thinking about the latter years of our life and living in the present day in light of those latter years. So, in this particular passage, 1631 through 176, there are two bookend verses. 1631 is a bookend verse, 176 is a bookend verse. Gray hair is, the, is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. And that is bookended by Proverbs 17, verse, verse 6. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their father's. Both those verses talk about what happens in the second half of life. And the verses in between tell us how to live in the present so that the second half is, is lived in a Godward direction. So let's start with the bookend verses. Solomon is talking about potential here. And he is giving us a very compelling vision. And the, the, the vision is this. The last half, the second half of life, can be the best half if you, if you live well. And so think about these two bookend verses for a second. Crown. We don't use the word crown so much in our culture. Unless you're Lady Gaga, she was, had a crown of skulls on, but, it, you know, forget that for a second. We don't, we don't use the idea of a crown so much in our culture, so we don't really understand emotionally what it symbolizes. But for, you know, for most of human history outside of our country, uh, kings and monarchs, royalty, wore crowns. And those crowns were symbolic of something. It was symbolic of their right to rule. It was symbolic of the glory of their majesty. It was symbolic of something about their significance. Now, when Solomon is using this term crown, he's using it metaphorically. And he's using it metaphorically in three ways. The first way is this, Isaiah 28, verse 5. Um, in that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. So when the scriptures use the term crown metaphorically, it is symbolic of the presence of God. It's possible for me to live as a believer and encounter the presence of God in my life in such a way that I feel as if God is leading me and guiding me. The crown is also used as an illustration of wisdom, Proverbs 4, 8, and 9. If you prize wisdom, she will make you great. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will place a lovely wreath on your head. She will present you with a beautiful crown. So the idea is that if I am living a life of wisdom, I have some authority which with, with which to live my life. I have, I have the ability to do certain things that are hard-earned through some painful things in my life. Crown is used metaphorically in a third way, for joy. Isaiah 35, verse 10, those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing and crowned with everlasting joy. So the idea about the crown metaphorically is that people 
and, and this is possible for people in the second half of life, is that they can have the potential to live in the presence of God, experience the joy of God, and lead in the power of God. When Solomon is using that idea of crown in the bookend verses, he's saying that's possible if you live well in the first half of life and if you make good decisions at halftime. Now, let me, let me dig a little deeper because um, this passage reveals two complementary paths to achieving that. Path number one is in verse 31, and it's gray hair is the crown of glory. It's gained in a righteous life. Now, think about that idea of righteous for a second. He's using the term righteous in Proverbs to mean disciplined. It's somebody who's disciplined to follow the path set down in the Scriptures. Now, when I say disciplined, don't, don't think, ugh, I hate discipline. I don't want that. Don't like discipline. The idea of discipline here is you are disciplined for a purpose because you want the results of what those disciplines give to you. For example, um, when my son was in Boy Scouts, he had a love-hate relationship with Boy Scouts. There were times where he said uh, it wasn't cool, and when I get my driver's license, I'm going to be done. And uh, he felt sometimes like I was dragging him on campouts. Um, he blamed me sometimes for, Dad, you're just reliving your childhood through me. True, true, but that's a, that's a different story. And we went to Philmont Scout Ranch for 14 days, and, um, and there were times where, you know, where he, you know, we, we had kind of a, love, a love-hate relationship with the whole experience. I loved it. But. So fast forward 15 years um, from the day, he, really almost 15 years from the month that he got his eagle, his eagle rank, he marries his wife, Liz, in Seattle. And Liz is a very accomplished backpacker. She's summited Mount Whitney in California. She's summited Mount Rainier in the state of Washington, as well as a number of other 14ers. She's very good at the technical side of backpacking. So guess what Caleb says to me now about his Boy Scouts? Dad, I loved what we did. Thank you for doing all you did with, for me in the Boy Scouts. And this is what spiritual disciplines are like. Do they feel fantastic in the moment? Not always. Not always. But you do them because of the result that you know is going to come as you, as you engage in those things. So I, I go back to the concept of the crown. People in the second half of life have the potential to live in the, in the presence of God, experiencing the joy of God, and leading in the power of God. But you have to set those disciplines in place in the first half of your life. Now Solomon gets a little bit more specific because there's one discipline that he especially zeroes in on in the other bookend verse, which is 17 verse 6, where he says, grandchildren are the crown of the aged and the glory of children is their fathers. Now realize Solomon here is thinking theologically back to Genesis where God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and he asks them to rule. And he's envisioning a grandfather who is built into his children and his grandchildren 
And they're now having influence in the third generation, leading people to Christ. Now, you could also apply that to discipleship. We could extend that to discipleship and say, say this could apply to somebody who has built into the lives of somebody else as a spiritual mentor, and they see the expanding influence that's happening in the lives of others. That's the kind of thing that Solomon is talking about. He's talking about living in the second half of life knowing that you've had significance generationally for the cause of Christ. All right, so let me, let me pause there for a second, and I, I want to ask you this question. Do you have a vision for the second half of your life? Somebody, some of you are there. Do you have a vision for the second half of your life? Now, I know I'm speaking to three different kinds of people. Some of you are in the first half, and you're thinking, wow, second half is a long way away, a long way away. Don't need to think about that right now. So here's what I would say to you guys in the first half. The boy is the father of the man, and the girl is the mother of the woman. And what I mean by that is that the decisions you make in the first half of life become hugely significant at halftime and during the second half. And the challenge that is all through the book of the Proverbs is follow God in your younger years. Be passionate about Him in your younger years. Because what you do in the younger years is like the father or the mother to who you are in the middle half and in the latter, latter half of life. Nobody likes to delay gratification. Nobody likes that. But in a way, what he's talking about are the benefits of some delayed gratification where you do the hard thing now because of the results that you reap and benefit later. I may also be speaking to those who are right in the middle of halftime, and you're saying, okay, so I have felt pretty beat up. Life has beaten me up. Some people have metaphorically beaten me up. Maybe you've beaten yourself up because you've made some tough decisions. Or maybe you've accomplished a lot and there's a nagging sense of lack of fulfillment. But being in pain at the halftime of life is not necessarily a bad thing. God uses pain at halftime to instruct us about those things that really matter in life. Seasoned leader once, once said to me, you know, at the halftime, you have to ask yourself, what is in my box? box? What do you mean box? The box is the single most important thing in your life. And you ask the question, okay, what's, what's in my box? What, what is the single most important thing in my life? What's the treasure that I value over and above everything else in my life? What, what is that thing? And pain at halftime forces you to answer that question. Is it family? Is it making money? Is it career accomplishment? Is it athletic achievement? Is it friends? What is it? What, what's, what's in the box? Pain at halftime forces you to answer that question in a way that will make you orient the rest of your life toward, toward that answer. Now, some of you are, are now in the second half of your life, and... Um, and uh, you know, I kind of feel like second half, the second half is that time where you say, okay, so now I kind of got to 
live with some of the results of my decisions. How do I do that well? How do I do that well? You know, when you get to the halftime and you have to make those, those, those decisions that take you into the second half of life, one of the things you have to do at, at, at the halftime is you have to pray that God would specifically direct you about what his calling is for you for that second half. You remember how the Buffalo Bills in 1993 were down by 35 points? It seemed hopeless. And Marv Levy gave the halftime speech of his entire career, and they came back. You need direction from God at the halftime. Um, now, let's go from there to the pathway. The potential is that the second half of life can be the best. Now you go to the pathway. There are six specific things that you can do to grow with integrity and joy so that the second half is a great half. All the six things I'm going to talk to address the second half issues of life. I'm not going to go particularly deep into these six areas, but I'm going to kind of go through them in bullet and bullet fashion as they're mentioned here. The first way is this, be slow to anger. Be slow to anger. If you want a second half of integrity and joy, you become slow to anger. Verse 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. A little background on this. You know, we don't have, we don't have superheroes. We have a lot of superheroes in our day that are fictional superheroes. Not that many real-life superheroes, but there are a few. Here's a superhero. This is Alex Hanold, who has recently climbed El Capitan in Yosemite without the aid of ropes. Does that make you just dizzy, like looking at that and thinking, how does he do that? He has no, no ropes holding him in. Uh, this guy is incredible as a, as a free climber, and he has done things that people thought were completely impossible. He's one of those modern-day heroes. Here's another modern-day hero, Ben Carson, you know, who did all this amazing work in pediatric neurosurgery. Here he is, much younger years, describing how he's going to separate uh, uh, Siamese twins. Uh, amazing. Well, <clears throat> back, in, back in the day, in the Old Testament, you know, the way you got to be a hero was to take a city. Here's a, here's a medieval walled city. Well, back in the first, before the first century, if you wanted to be an amazing hero, you would lead a group of people to defeat a walled city. And what Solomon is saying here, you know who, who's a real superhero? It's the person who rules his spirit, who rules over his spirit. That's the real superhero. Um, the person who is slow to anger is a person who is safe inside his family. It's a person who makes decisions well inside his family. It's a person who is welcomed as a leader inside his family. A person who does not rule their spirit well creates a wall that prevents true intimacy in a family. So if you get to the middle half of your life or the second half of your life and you, you're not ruling your spirit well, in other words, you're quick to anger, you will not have those kinds of relationships in the second half of your life that allow you to lead well 
So if you want to you lead well with integrity and joy in the second half of your life, you learn to become slow to anger. Is that, is that a hard thing to do? Yeah, it's a hard thing to do. Otherwise, Solomon wouldn't say, he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes the city. It's very hard to do. But working at the discipline of being slow to anger is one of those disciplines that pays off big time in the second half of life. Here's the second thing. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So second way you move into the second half with integrity and joy is you stay confident in God when life gets chaotic. This verse is very interesting because he's referring to the Urim and the Thummim stones. A little background on that. The high priest had a breastplate and Built within the breastplate was a pocket, and inside that pocket were two stones, the Urim and the Thummim stones. And when hard decisions needed to be made, the high priest would put his hand inside that pocket, bring out the stones, and throw the stones down onto the table as if they were dice. That sounds crazy to us in our day. Like, why would you ever do that? But God had ordained that the high priest could make hard decisions by using those stones, and the results of those stones on the table would be the will of God. Now, we would never do that in our day, but the application is that when life gets really difficult and we have to make hard decisions, we trust in the sovereignty of God, even when life becomes incredibly chaotic. I had a conversation with somebody this week. And life got very chaotic for this person. And it is hard to trust in the sovereignty of God in the midst of chaos. And yet, and yet, those people who do well at halftime and in the second half of their life are people who are managing their chaos by radically trusting in the sovereignty of God. Here's the third thing that we can we can do if we want to enter into the second half of life with integrity and joy. We build a home that radiates humility and integrity. Proverbs 17, 1 and 2, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance of one of the brothers. These two verses talk about a home. And it pictures two homes. I'll, I'll, I'll contextualize it to our day. Imagine one home that is very upscale and beautiful and another home that is very ordinary and common. And you ask yourself the question, what home would I, would I prefer? And Solomon's answer to that question is, don't look at the outside, look at the inside. What is happening relationally inside those two respective homes. Solomon's saying, you know, maybe you could be in a beautiful home, but there's trouble inside. There's strife inside. There's the irresponsibility of some of the family members on the inside. That house is beautiful, but inside it's fraught with pain and anguish. Would you rather be in that home or a small home where there is authenticity and kindness and grace and integrity and love and beauty, and joy. What home would you rather be in? Well, I've known some people who've been in homes like the one on the left, and they've said, I would 
infinitely prefer a home like the home on the right than what I have in my chaotic and yet affluent home. You want to enter the second half of life with integrity and joy. You build a home life that radiates humility and integrity. You know, the, the thing that's kind of, I think, amazing about, about kids is that you will be remembered in the second half of life not by the things that you acquired or the success that you have relative to the world. You will be remembered by the love that you gave. That's how you're remembered. I've talked to the son of a very, very accomplished man. And uh, he told me, man, growing up in my, in my home was pressure. It was pressure. And what I wanted was his unconditional love. What I felt was his pressure. His pressure. And that dad did not have second-half influence on his son because pressure was the character of the home in his earlier years. Now, here's a fourth way. Stay faithful to God in the midst of testing. Proverbs 17, verse 3, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. The Lord tests hearts. Here's a, a truism about life. Everybody will encounter testing. It's not if you encounter testing, it's when and how much. And likely your testing is not going to be in just one area. It's going to be in a series of areas, your marriage, your finances, your family, your work life, life with friends. You're going to be tested in a variety of different areas. And it's like the testing of metals. You know, metals are refined by fire. Gold is refined in the crucible. Silver is refined in the crucible. And you heat up the metal until it gets, gets molten and liquid and incredibly hot. And guess what rises to the surface? The dross the scum, and you have to scrape that stuff off the surface. And that's what testing does. And everybody in life will go through testing. How do you respond to testing? Some people respond really well. They respond in humility. They respond with a desire to shift things around and move things in a Godward direction. Some people don't respond very well in adversity. And what happens to them is they become bitter and angry and frustrated and rage against God. And what he's saying here is the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, but Yahweh, the one who loves you, he is the one committed to testing your heart, meaning he wants to purify you and grow you and shift you into a new place. Here's the fifth way that you can grow into the second half of life with integrity and joy. Be very careful about where you get your information. How relevant is that in our day and age where people are talking about fake news on both sides? They're always talking about fake news. Be very careful about where you get your information. We, we live in an, in an age where it's easy to get wrong information. And behind that wrong headline is a massive amount of so-called research that backs up that so-called wrong headline. 
And you've got to be very careful about where you're going to get your information. I'll give you one example that is, that is relevant, um, relevant, I think, I think in, in, our, in our culture, and that is, <clears throat> um, let, me, let me read this once more time. An evil listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Mischievous tongue, the idea being that that person wants to lie to you, wants to subvert your thinking. So I, I think about, um, you know, an example um, where, say, the area of sexuality, where we see in our culture this, this, um, this sense that sexuality today is one of those topics where people are afraid to talk about it. People use sexuality in our culture in many ways like it's a handshake, like it's expected that this is no big deal. And people will gravitate toward reasons why they can misuse their sexuality. And I read recently, according to the Center for Disease Control, that among our senior citizen population in the U.S., sexually transmitted diseases are spreading like wildfire. Here's the quote. Since 2007, incidence of syphilis among seniors is up by 52%. It isn't merely a phenomenon in the U.S., but several recent British studies have mentioned similar results, talking about incidences in retirement homes and in nursing homes, in nursing homes. And some of the reasons in this article were that people were thinking, well, I read all these things that it's no big deal for me to, to use my sexuality any way I want to, no big deal. What I'm saying is you've got to be very careful about where you get your information and how you use that information. You know, people live by bumper sticker headlines today. They construct worldviews by bumper sticker headlines, thinking, well, there's certainly a lot of research behind this, right? Because everybody's talking about it. And you can make some bad decisions in the first half of life and in the middle half of life that make things painful in the second half of life. Here's a final way um, to move into second half of life and in integrity and joy, serve, and especially serve those who can't pay you back. This is Proverbs 17, verse 5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Solomon is saying something in the negative to emphasize the positive. And what he states in the negative is don't, don't be contemptuous when you see people in poverty. A lot of people in the second half of life get sloppy and they're thinking about poverty. And they see somebody who is poor and, and they say, you know something? I sacrificed. I used grit. I delayed gratification. I'm doing pretty well right now. And I see somebody who may not have used grit, may not have used delayed ratification, and they're not doing too well right now. And they probably are not going to deal well with my help. So I'm going to feel, maybe nurse, somewhat contemptuous feelings toward the poor. Or they might say, yeah, I, I value being generous to the poor as a concept, but I don't do it. I'm not going to do that because I'm a little concerned that they're not going to steward my help in a great way. 
And you'll notice that he says, whoever mocks the poor insults who? The maker of the poor, who is God. And God takes that very seriously. And so the, the answer is that we find ways of serving, especially serving those people who cannot pay us back. Now, those are the six ways that Solomon gives that we can, six pathways so that we can move into the second half of life with integrity and joy. But now we run into a problem. And I, I noticed this problem as I was reading this. The problem is supposing you're in the second half of life and you say, uh, I didn't make good decisions in the first half. I didn't make good decisions at halftime. How do I navigate the second half of my life? And it, it dawned on me that Solomon was in that exact same position. What if you realize you're in the second half of life and you've been on the wrong path? Well, Solomon reached the second half of his life and he was on the wrong path. He made a lot of bad decisions at the midway part of his life. And Solomon did things that God told kings not to do. God says to kings in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, you kings of Israel do not multiply gold. I want you trusting in me. You kings of Israel do not multiply horses. I want you trusting in me for your military might. You kings of Israel, don't multiply wives. Don't do that. I want you to think differently about, about marriage as king of Israel. Guess what Solomon did? He multiplied gold, horses, and wives. And his wives turned his heart away from God. And he went through a period where he turned his back on God. That all the things he told us not to do in Proverbs 16, 31 through 17, verse 6. And he gets to a point in his life where he, in fact, he says this at the, at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. My life is not meaningless. Solomon, are you kidding me? Richest guy in the world? And your life feels like it's not meaningful? What, what's going on with that? Well, that's what life is like apart from God, even if you're the richest guy in the world. It can be meaningless. And so Solomon in Ecclesiastes is poetically telling his story, and he includes four passages that are basically carpe diem passages, seize the day passages. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20 is a case in point. Behold, I have seen to be, what I've seen to be good and fitting is this, to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one, with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given to him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth <clears throat> and possessions and power, it's good to enjoy them and accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, for this is the gift of God. What's Solomon saying? In a poetic way, Solomon is saying this. Let's say you're in the second half of life and things are painful. What do you do? Solomon is saying you live passionately for God in the present. You live moment by moment in the kingdom presence of God. It's a gift to you to be able to do that. Solomon is saying that God can be enough, especially in the second half, if you're living in a moment by moment passionate relationship 
to him. So, Solomon's point, regardless of your past, you can live joyfully, productively, meaningfully, passionately in the present. Now, let's kind of look, jump back and scan this entire, this entire concept. The, the big idea is this. If you want to live well in the second half of life, you make choices in the first half, and you make choices at halftime that lead to thriving in the second half. The boy is the father of the man. The girl is the mother of the woman. So what choices do you need to make now, now, so that the next season of your life is a season of genuine flourishing? Let's pray. Father, we bow before you right now and and just, Lord, I, I ask that you would give each one of us individually a thought about what that would be. Is there a decision that we need to make? Is there somebody that we need to talk to? Do we need to get the help of a coach or a spiritual mentor? Father, thank you for the vision that it, it is possible that the second half of life can be the best part of life. Solomon distinctly tells us that's possible. Lord, I pray that you would, you would give us insights about what choices and decisions we need to make wherever we are right now so that the next season can be a season of thriving. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Rod. Good morning.